a few bits and pieces of news I want to comment on, and then, for a bit of a change of pace, I want to talk about the Russo-Chinese intelligence relationship, and the degree to which it is a friendly or rather more frenemish one. And welcome to my view of Russia in Moscow's shadows. This podcast, of varying length, frequency and format, yet always reassuringly low production values, is supported by generous and perspicacious patrons, who also receive extra perks and bonuses appropriate to their tier. If you'd like to join them, just head on to patreon.com slash shadows. But now, on with today's programme. So let me start today by responding to a few of the new news stories of the moment, of which the first one is clearly the recent combined air and sea drone attack by Ukraine on Russia's Black Sea Fleet in Sevastopol. And, well, first of all, I mean, it's interesting just simply because it is a tactical innovation. Apparently it's the very first time we've seen coordinated air and sea drone attacks, And that's pretty, I think, symptomatic of the way that all wars are forcing houses for technical and tactical innovation. Everything from, if we look at the very beginning of this war with the so-called the Alibaba army of uh, civilian drones that was bought off, Alibaba being an online Chinese wholesaler, and then used not just to keep tabs on Russian forces, but very quickly were repurposed to drop hand grenades or stocked up with explosives, be launched as kind of kamikaze munitions and such like. You know, from that point onwards, we really have seen, obviously, the Ukrainians being particularly inventive. But in in some ways, this is just simply the pattern that one tends to see in military conflicts. So, yes, this is a tactical innovation, but it also led to quite a substantial political economic change in that the Russians pulled out of the grain deal, whereby they cooperated in allowing Ukrainian grain to be exported primarily from Odessa. And is this a big deal? Well, look, I mean, on the one hand, this will be sort of played up as Russians starving the poor, hungry people of the world, which is a little bit true, but let's be perfectly honest, just over half of all the grain and corn products that were exported were actually going to high-income nations. They were going to... Turkey, they were going to South Korea, they were going to Italy, a lot of sunflower pulp was going to China, admittedly, but generally speaking, it was roughly speaking 50% to high-income nations, 25% middle-income, 25% poor countries. So, by no means an inconsiderable blow, but nonetheless, we also ought to recognise the degree to which uh, the wealthy countries, and particularly the West, did find a way of uh, benefiting from it. And in some ways, I'm not really surprised. I imagine the Russians have been looking for an excuse for a long, long time because they weren't really getting anything out of this. And frankly, I suspect that they're moderately confident that they won't suffer a great diplomatic blow in the global south. Because if there's been one success of the Russians, and frankly, 
one has to look quite hard to find any, but one success has been precisely their capacity to mobilise opinion in the global south. Not so much to win support, but rather to make it much harder for the United States and the rest of the West to be able to push its own narrative about why this is an aggressive Russian war. There is a widespread sense that essentially this is a, for want of a better word, a European civil war. It's a northern conflict which doesn't affect them and their interests, and yet instead they are being forced in various ways to pay for it. Not just in terms of higher food prices as well as higher energy prices, but also in the way that secondary sanctions, American secondary sanctions, which basically say if you break our sanctions, you yourself come under sanctions, which with some considerable virtue, some considerable justice rather, is being considered to be financial hegemony by many countries. You know, it is the United States basically saying, you do what we say or bad things happen to you. Now, let me just be absolutely clear. I'm not for a moment saying that it's wrong for the United States to do that. But I am saying in some ways it's a hard sell and the Russians have taken advantage of that. So they're presumably reckoning that they won't really take much of a, of a diplomatic hit from this. So does this attack matter? Well, it does matter because once again it shows the extent to which Ukraine is serious about taking the war to Crimea, that Crimea is absolutely on the table militarily, and also that they are looking for new and inventive ways of trying to hit at the Russians. It's hard to be sure exactly what the outcome of this. The Russians are saying that uh, one minesweeper was slightly damaged. Others are claiming that the, the new Black Sea Fleet flagship was hit, or at least it sort of suffered damage to its radar. Honestly, it looks like it wasn't a big deal in terms of the military outcome, but it is a big deal in that it once again shows that the Russians cannot be comfortable in any way, in any point. The Ukrainians are being very good at finding new ways of striking at them. And of course, that brings us to the whole question of the disputed city of Kherson. On the one hand, there are all kinds of signs suggesting that the Russians are preparing to withdraw from the city, which is frankly very, very hard to, if not entirely impossible, to defend long term, given the Ukrainian capacity to basically hit any supply lines going in. But then at the same time, we have the Ukrainians, or some Ukrainians, particularly military intelligence, saying that no, this is all actually a ruse, that the Russians are sending in more troops to defend it and such like. Now, personally, I still think that the Russians are going to pull out. Now, on one level, look, what do I know? But I don't think that sending in forces is in any way a contraindication that they plan to withdraw. Assuming they plan a, a managed withdrawal, they will need to have relatively competent and disciplined forces that can able to maintain the front line while the other elements are, are pulled out. A managed withdrawal is one of the hardest things to do in warfare. And let's be perfectly honest, the Russians haven't sort of distinguished themselves so far by their capacity to pull off complex evolutions. So you know, it's not surprising if they sent forces in precisely as a way of preparing. What I did find particularly interesting about this, two things really. One is that if the Russians are allowed to withdraw, and I mean allowed not by the Ukrainians, but by Moscow, it will say something about the changing nature of power over the military operation. You know, up to now, Putin has, as I've said before, essentially been Ukraine's secret weapon by his cack-handed and politically dominated micromanagement of the situation, or not so much micromanagement as just simple constant interference. 
And he clearly prevented the military from doing what they wanted to do weeks or months ago, which was withdraw from Kherson, because, of course, it would be deeply politically embarrassing. Now, if he allows this to happen, it says something about either he has become belatedly aware of just how dangerous the situation is there, or, I suppose rather, and or, he has finally learned a lesson that Joseph Stalin learned rather more quickly, which is, especially when you're losing, if you are not some kind of military genius, then frankly, butt out and let the generals do the generaling. And in this case, it would suggest that the new overall field commander, Sorovikin, has been given freer reign. So we'll just have to wait and see on that point. What I did find really interesting in the news of the preparations for withdrawal was that, you know, along with a certain number of administrators, brackets, quislings, close brackets, and other civilians, they removed from Herson two statues and, indeed, the mortal remains of Prince Grigory Alexandrovich Patyomkin, a favourite of Catherine the Great, who was buried there. Now... Why on earth do that? I mean, what, frankly, are the remains of Patyomkin of importance to Russia these days? Well, I mean, this is something that I want to talk about, actually, in a future podcast. But I do think that it says something about an increasing trend of mysticism in Russian official doctrine and narratives. A sense that... Uh, and I suppose it links in with an issue about whether this is, in effect, becoming a monarchy. It's a question I was asked at uh, an event I did at George Washington University, um, which, it, which was uh, recorded. I'll leave a link in the program notes. In which, you know, given that I was in classic, offhand nature, talking about uh, Putin as, as the new czar, you know, actually, you know, what makes him a monarch? And my answer was that a key element of, of monarchy is that your legitimation comes from above, not below. In other words, you're not really pretending to be there as a representative of the masses. And frankly, I think Putin has long since abandoned that. But instead of ruling in the name of, well, obviously in this case, it's not divine right. It's not dynastic succession. It is rather, I think, some kind of invocation of uh, a greater national destiny of Russia. You know, after all, if one looks at the way that Putin frames this war as some kind of not just existential, but above all cultural struggle against a, a hegemonic West, that is in part obviously just simply self-serving propaganda. But I think it also speaks to the fact that this is a, in some ways someone who feels that he is representing, channeling, championing something that is greater than the Russians, and it is up to the Russian people to live up to his dream, his ideal, rather than for him to live up to their expectations. So, bit, bit of a sideline, um, but as I said, I think in some ways, you know, I mean, I suppose one could also point to this bizarre claim that, that one of Russia's goals this is just made by some uh, official within the Security Council Secretariat. But nonetheless, the claim that Russia's goal should be the de of Ukraine. 
Uh, who, who knew it that, in fact, Ukraine was also uh, a hotbed of, of Satanism? I can see the uh, witch-burning inquisitors queuing up for a position. But anyway, as I said, it, it, it does speak to, I think, a growing mysticism within Russian thinking, Russian official thinking. And uh, as I said, I, I want to talk about that. Final point that I wanted to raise before the break in a rather more kind of coherent, shall we say, segment is... There's a growing narrative I'm, I'm seeing out there in the usual sort of commentariat and uh, the cesspool that is Twitter, regardless of whether or not Elon Musk owns it, um, is this notion that essentially, you know, this is not Putin's war, but Russia's war, because, you know, Russians have been so bombarded with all kinds of toxic nonsense propaganda that they have been brainwashed by it and entirely taken in by it. And look, I am an, an old lag. You know, I started looking at this country when it was the Soviet Union rather than Russia. And the thing that strikes me is the Soviet Union had vastly greater control over the means of information, the inputs, for 99-point-whatever percent of Soviet society. You know, this was a pre-internet age. Um, and this is an age in which BBC and RFE and so forth were jammed, often really quite effectively. It was an age when people didn't get to travel unless they were already sort of ultra-loyalists, and even then they were very sort of carefully chaperoned and managed. And yet, as we all know from the stories of what happened, it is clear that Soviet citizens were not all loyal, brainwashed drones, you know, heading from one Marxist-Leninist indoctrination meeting to their obligatory, voluntary, subotnik Saturday labours and such like. Instead, they had learned the art of saying one thing and believing something else, that you adopted a completely different persona, a completely different set of perceptions when you were out, especially out in some kind of official capacity, compared to when you were sitting around the kitchen table. And I find it astonishing that people who know that perfectly well nonetheless somehow feel that, that today's Russians have been entirely taken in. Look, this is an, a, a regime which is moving from authoritarianism into totalitarianism. It is increasingly intolerant of any kind of pluralism. It is increasingly attempting to clamp down control over alternative perspectives and narratives. Once upon a time, it didn't really care what people thought. It just simply cared what they did. Now, increasingly, it does care what people think. But still, it doesn't mean to say it's very good at it. Now, why should we presume that the regime that manages to co comprehensively botch its invasion of Ukraine the regime that thinks that saying that a couple of assassins were actually going to look at the spire of a church instead of carrying out their murderous mission. You know, the regime that manages to create such laughably ridiculous propaganda campaigns in the West somehow is of astonishing ruthless effectiveness at home. We should not confuse Acts of acquiescence in a totalitarian society, when you are obviously worried about what would happen to you, to your family and so forth, with actual genuine support. So I think let's just always have that in mind. I'm not going to turn around and tell you that every single Russian is in fact... Uh, 
devoted enemy of the regime and hostile to the war and just simply waiting for the opportunity to express that. It's not. Most people don't really know what the hell is going on or what to believe. They don't want to believe that their country is involved in a murderous war of, of occupation, let alone that it's losing one. But nonetheless, that does not necessarily translate, translate into active support. And if that were the case, would we actually see, and that was a fascinating little factoid, um, the news that Russians were spending 70% more on antidepressants this year. Now, in part, that's because prices went up. But the point is, the volume of antidepressant sales has gone up by 48%. Now, does that speak to you of a happy and contented society loyally supporting Putin wherever he leads? I don't think so. Anyway, let's have a quick break now and then let me talk about Sino-Russian intelligence cooperation and how far that cooperation is actually about competition. Just the usual reminder, you're listening to the In Moscow Shadows podcast. You can support it by going to patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows. And remember that patrons get a variety of additional perks, as well as knowing that they're supporting this peerless source on all things Russian. And you can also follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or on Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. Now, back to the show. There's been some interesting recent chatter, shall we say, about the scale of Russo-Chinese intelligence cooperation, as well as the tensions that this may be causing in some quarters of Moscow, including quarters that usually are, frankly, loyalist ones. And we've seen, after all of late, the suggestions of, indeed, growing connections. 19th of September, the Security Council, the Russian Security Council, issued a statement talking about increased military cooperation, a very fulsome statement, which seems to have been, according to some sources, followed by a secret memorandum on increased intelligence cooperation. In part, this is about uh, cyber espionage and cyber counter-espionage, but it goes beyond that. And it's worth noting, after all, that that particular statement was issued at the very time that Nikolai Patrushev, Secretary of the Security Council, one of Putin's particular eminence, Gris, was actually in China at the time. Then, on the 26th of October, there was a meeting of the heads of CIS, Commonwealth of Independent States, security and intelligence heads in Moscow. And look, uh, Russia obviously dominates this particular body, but quite frankly, its dominance is increasingly, I would say, skin deep, in the sense that Russia's days, frankly, as the security guarantor and thus regional hegemon, especially in Central Asia, but not exclusively there, I think are very much on the decline. So, look, you know, everyone says nice things to the Russians when they have to. There is a certain amount of deference, but only, I think, insofar as the, the ceremonial stuff is being done. I don't actually think that people are still thinking of Russia as, in effect, the, the security leader of the CIS. But anyway, what's interesting is this. Look, China is not a member of the CIS. This is very def definitely a body of former Soviet states. But it was followed, I'm told, and again, usual caveats about this. I don't have any kind of solid um, supporting material for this. But I'm told it was then followed by a pretty high-level meeting between officials of the Chinese security community and figures within the Foreign Intelligence Service in particular, 
and the Foreign Intelligence Service acting on a remit from the Security Council to in some ways be the representatives of the whole Russian intelligence community, which was for two things really. One is almost to, to reassure the, the Chinese about how far Moscow loved them really, but also actually to pass on some tidbits of information which had already been shared with Moscow from other CIS countries. And so this induced me to think about actually revisiting some notes I had from a presentation I, was, I gave to, you know, full credit to it, to um, the Marshall Centre garmisch partenkirchen um, as part of their sort of very much ongoing programme of, of looking at what's going on with Russia, in which I was speaking about the Russian-Chinese intelligence and information operations nexus. And I said, some of what I've said I'm actually thinking is now irrelevant, after all time passes, and that was a presentation in December 2021, which, that was a world ago. I mean, less than a year, and yet, I would say, a whole epoch has passed. Anyway, um, so that, that was in December 21, and the, so some of it's not really relevant, some of it has been overtaken by developments, and so I think it's actually worth revisiting. Some basic points to make. China and Russia do have, a, this is a phenomenally banal way of starting, a complex relationship. Putin and Xi can get together and they can swear that they have this friendship without limits. But, you know, as has been demonstrated by China's unwillingness, frankly, to provide much, much assistance to Moscow with its war in Ukraine, frankly, a war that, from China's point of view, is considerably inconvenient, even if it is also in some ways gaining from it. But nonetheless, this friendship without limits is also a friendship without benefits, as far as Moscow is concerned. They're not really getting anything out of it, and Moscow can't really do anything about it. I mean, it does need China. It needs China's diplomatic assistance when it can get it, but more to the point, it needs China for economic uh, purposes. It needs obviously the, the markets and so forth, but frankly it also needs China's banking system as a way of laundering a certain amount of money out and back in. So, you know, for these reasons, basically the relationship is tilting increasingly Beijing's way. And it's worth noting that that is something that alarms a lot of Russians. I really would stress this. I think there is a key generational point here that is too often missed. From the point of view of Putin and his fellow 68 to 74 year olds, this conflict with the West is what it's all about. And if they have to make nice with China, if they have to make concessions towards China, in the name of this conflict, so be it. Anything on the other side of this conflict, that's, that's going to be someone else's problem. Who cares about that? On the other hand, in my experience, the 50-something-year-olds and the early 60-something-year-olds, the next political generation, who are, you know, frankly, looking at their watches, wondering when it's going to be their time in the sun, as Putin and co. kind of become an increasingly gerontocratic leadership. But anyway, that political generation, in my experience, are a lot more alarmed about China. These are the people, precisely, who do think longer term, because they, they reckon that they're going to be around for, for longer, and although they are seized with the need to be combating the West at the moment, they aren't entirely willing and happy to see Russia go in hock to Beijing totally in the process. And I'm, again, it's a quote I've used before, my apologies, but I, I think it is just very telling that back in, I think it was 2015-ish, talking to a retired Russian military officer, 
colonel, been in the general staff, main operations directorate. So in other words, you know, one of their thinkers and planners. And he had said, look, in 20 years' time, Russia will have faced the choice between becoming an ally of the West of some kind, and he didn't mean joining the European Union or NATO, but just simply have found a modus vivendi. Or, he continued, becoming a vassal of China. That's a very stark choice. And so I think you know, that this is an area in which there is considerable behind-the-scenes debate. I think so much about this is, is how things work in today's Russia. You cannot go directly against the Putin line, shall we say. But that doesn't mean to say that everyone is, is a happy, loyal drone. You find all kinds of ways around it and hoping to, if not subvert the line, change the line. And this is something that I will come to. So let me think, okay, what are the different uh, intelligence services think of and do and have their relationship? Well, look, if we start with the SVR, as I mentioned, the Foreign Intelligence Service, well, they have a, an agreement from dating back to 1992 with the military intelligence side of the People's Liberation Army, the PLA. And that's quite important because that's not the Ministry of State Security, which is the main to use a very kind of crude analogy, the main Chinese KGB, a kind of one-stop shop of intelligence, counterintelligence, and political security. Instead, the SVR is much more, kind of, as I said, connected to military intelligence, which is a much more kind of narrow and, I would say, professional and technical kind of service. And there is all kinds of cooperation, defense cooperation, bilateral intelligence sharing, and so forth, including quite a bit through the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is a sort of a wider regional alliance. Broadly speaking, though, in my sense, I think that the, the SVR, which is a rather more cautious agency compared with, with its counterparts, it tends to think slightly more long-term, although it's being pushed into being much more of a war-fighting agency, taking risks, accepting that a lot of things are going to go wrong. Nonetheless, that's not the, the institutional culture, I would suggest, of, of the SVR. And in that context, I think they're actually quite limited in their real contacts with, with the Chinese. There's a certain amount of sharing of, shall we say, um, very, very specific information that is of mutual value. For example, if the Russians find out about an American intelligence operation against the Chinese, they might well not want the Americans to be able to have the fruits of that, and therefore they might tip the Chinese off. But that's because of their own interests. The main area in which they do, still do cooperate is in, is in cyber, where there is a sense that the Chinese do have something absolutely to bring to the table. But generally speaking, the SVR, true to form, is able to pretend to a lot of cooperation and, and uh, great assistance, but instead is still very much sort of hanging back. And it was quite striking that uh, last year, in, in July, for example, Narishkin, the head of the SVR, you know, was very, very fulsome on cooperation with his Indian counterparts. And that's quite striking, given that the India-China relationship is a pretty fraught one, and frankly, even more fraught within the intelligence field than anything else. And Narishkin, who, whatever one may say about him, and frankly, I have already said quite a bit, I'm not a great fan, but nonetheless, he is actually a pretty able politician. 
And therefore, that's not just something that would have slipped out. That's not something that he blundered, not realizing that it might have a wider connotation. I think this was Narishkin trying to signal to the Chinese that, look, we have, we have other people we can talk to as well. So do not think of us as vassals yet, but as significant players who are willing to cooperate when it's in our interest. Secondly, if we move on to GRU, okay, technically GU, military intelligence, well, they have a similar agreement with the People's Liberation Army military intelligence, but actually they have been in some ways even more cautious about the, the level to which they expose themselves in, through cooperation with the Chinese, not least because GRU is especially active in Central Asia. Under the terms of the CIS agreement, when it was originally formed, basically the Russians agreed not to spy on their partners. However, the terms of the agreement were that the SVR would not spy on the partners. So, of course, GRU just simply filled the gap. So, there GRU is especially active, and this is, again, a particular area for competition with China. So, I think this is also kind of almost, shall we say, acclimated the GRU to thinking of the Chinese more as potential rivals. Now, at present, the GRU is having to probably, frankly, pull some assets out of Central Asia just because, well, they're busy elsewhere. But I, I don't think it, it's changed the, the culture. Now, that said, again, everyone has to play their part in the wider diplomatic offensive. And last year, the uh, Moscow Conference on International Security, which is, again, one of these big sort of marquee events, you had then um, head of GRU, Admiral Kostyukov, very much following in the lead of uh, Defence Minister Shoigu and being terribly fulsome on cooperation with China and, in particular, about the American threat in, in the Pacific. But as I said, I mean, I, th I think we, sh we should assume that this is more words than, than deeds at the moment. There are, though, two areas of particular cooperation on military technology, espionage, and on, again, information operations. The GRU's Unit 54777, which is one of the main psychological warfare information operations sort of side of, of GRU, also part of the 72nd Special Services Center, you know, has been quite active in sharing its techniques and technologies with the Chinese. Um, which I, I think including, I think I could be wrong, the uh, People's Liberation Army's strategic support force. Now again, because this was essentially seen as a pretty safe way of accruing credit with Beijing. Safe because ultimately, it's, you know, it's given that it is unlikely, at least for the foreseeable future, that there will be any direct military conflict between Russia and China. Not least because Russian Far East is pretty much indefensible militarily. If the Chinese come spilling over the border, then basically I don't see how Russia can defend itself with anything other than some kind of nuclear response. So in those circumstances, as I say, this is something that, that it's safe to share. You know it's much more likely to be deployed against people whom you don't particularly like. And as I said, it is really important for the Russians to be gaining brownie points with, with the Chinese. So I think that that's, again, quite, quite a sign of just how transactional this is. And finally, if we look at the FSB, the Federal Security Service, here I think the situation is even more complex and, frankly, even more interesting. Because the FSB is at once the greatest advocate of cooperation with China and also the greatest 
advocate of the need to watch the Chinese like a hawk. This is a, an interesting complexity. It's not as we often find because there's different arms of the FSB operating in different ways. It is because the FSB is genuinely torn. So the, the FSB, unlike its sister agencies, cooperates primarily with the Ministry of State Security, which is a very big beast in China. And in particular, they, they cooperate on counterintelligence, you know, especially, as I say, on, on Western spies and Western uh, techniques and such like but also counter-jihadism. Now, counter-jihadism, which actually is interpreted tremendously broadly often, obviously from the Chinese point of view, it's everyone, anyone who frankly has even mentioned the word Uyghur, they probably think is, is a potential jihadist. Uh, and here, actually, the FSB and the Chinese cooperate quite extensively in Central Asia. So just as the GRU is busy trying to actually monitor and sometimes even counter Chinese expansion of operations in Central Asia, the FSB is often cooperating with it, in part because, again, they both have a shared interest in ensuring that, that Islamic radicals and potentially violent Islamic radicals in the region or infiltrating the region from, say, Afghanistan do not then head towards their respective countries. So you know, there is a considerable density of contact and sharing of techniques in cyber, in information operations, in domestic security, as well as actually just kind of raw information and analysis. And yet, the FSB is also Russia's primary counterintelligence agency. And it is clear that it is increasingly alarmed and exasperated by Chinese intelligence activity within the Russian Federation, which clearly has been increasing. I mean, it had been increasing since before the war. I have a suspicion that it's also continued to increase for slightly different reasons that I'll come to at the end. So Chinese espionage, which is especially geared towards scientific and technical research. And we have therefore, as a result, seen a, a collection of individual cases in which actually the FSB is now specifically blaming the Chinese when they have various arrests. Now, again, this matters, and this is really a trend. I mean, there were exceptions, but essentially it's really from 2020. Before that point, almost invariably, when the FSB came up with a Chinese intelligence case, it would be handled very quietly. Someone might well be arrested, and maybe some second secretary political at the Chinese embassy in Moscow, there'll be a quiet word that it's probably time that he, and it almost certainly would be he, um, should, should get another posting. But no one wanted any fuss. Since 2020, particularly in connection with some, some technological researchers and some Arctic researchers, we've had cases where, where the FSB has come flat out and, and blamed people for being Chinese spies. And then also that year, again, so 2020 is when it seemed to have shifted, we had the FSB and Rostelecom blaming the Chinese state-linked uh, cyber mercenaries. Um, isn't that, that's an exciting term. This is it. You just add cyber to anything, you know, cyber mercenaries. Um, anyway, four attacks which were, and this is actually a sort of quote, unprecedented in their scope and sophistication on... Russian networks, very, very strongly implying that actually it was the People's Liberation Army's cyber agencies which provided support or maybe even ran the, these attacks. So again, some, from that point, we have seen the FSB continuing to kind of frame China as a threat, even while it happily cooperates.
So these are the broad trends we've got. We have active cooperation between the Russian and the Chinese agencies on counterintelligence against the West, on cyber concerns, which again often is about the, against the West or against domestic dissidents, and also information operations, again, primarily against the West because they are most effective against open societies rather than closed ones like China and increasingly Russia. Secondly, we have very strong signs of competition particularly in terms of technology, but even it's a, here is a, it's a frankly largely a one-way process. As near as we can tell, the Chinese are much, much more willing to spy on the Russians than vice versa. The, the Russians are exceedingly cautious. Now look, okay, in part it's because frankly China is a hard target. All the intelligence agencies know that. But I think that the Chinese are someone whom the Russians frankly do not want to alienate and therefore they're being much more careful. So it's very much about the Russian agencies trying to protect their own core national security structures and secrets from the Chinese and anything else. And it's a changing balance. You've got the FSB which is getting increasingly wary of China. You have the GRU which is much more chummy and frankly, as it begins to disengage slightly from Central Asia, the grounds for competition will become less. And I suspect that actually the GRU will, will in, in due course, become one of the main advocates for a close intelligence relationship with, with China. And at the same time, you actually have the SVR still trying to basically stay on the fence by, you know, on the one hand, talking up cooperation, but on the other hand, trying to, to limit, it, limit that as much as possible. And the final point I'd really want to make is that, again, I think with, with the war, China is exceedingly interested in the lessons of the war on a very, very technical basis. There's been some suggestions that they're you know, increasing their intelligence op operations to try and find out what lessons the Russians are learning about, quite frankly, how effective Western weapons are against them and how ineffective their own are. Because remember, the Chinese military, although it's now almost entirely equipped with Chinese-made kit, but still a lot of that kit has its roots in Soviet and Russian systems. And therefore, this is for them a really important opportunity, even if often for them a rather sobering opportunity, to get a sense of how kit, which bears a certain resemblance to their own, fares against the kind of kit that they would be coming up against were they to move against Taiwan and, and the United States. So I think this is also you know, generating an increased pressure. So despite all the overt friendship and the overtures and so forth, ultimately I think that these are tensions that both governments regard as inevitable but also acceptable. That, as with so many other things, what happens in the espionage world, to a degree, stays in the espionage world. And whatever the, the, the state of the overall relationship in that espionage world, Russia and China are, are not even, frankly, frenemies. They are much more likely frivals. And on that neologism, thank you very much indeed for listening. Well, that's the end of another episode of the In Moscow Shadow podcast. Just as a reminder, beyond this, you can follow my blog, also called In Moscow Shadows. Follow me on Twitter, at Mark Galliotti, or Facebook, Mark Galliotti on Russia. This podcast is made possible by generous and enlightened patrons, and you too can be one. 
Just go along to my Patreon page, that's patreon.com slash inmoscowshadows, and decide which tier you want to join, getting access to exclusive materials and other perks. However, whether or not you contribute, thank you very much indeed for listening. Until next time, keep well. И только будь, пожалуйста, со мною, товарищ прав.